0: Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com/braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn’t have a serious negative effect. We’d love it if you’d run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a 5 star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com trinityradio trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio, I'm Braxton Hunter, I'm so glad that you're here, and today we're going to talk about the subject of contempt, feeling contempt towards someone, or having someone treat you with contempt, and to do that we're going to take a look at the Bible, because I think there's a lot of contempt in the world going on right now. There's a lot of contempt on YouTube, there's a lot of contempt between atheists and Christians, and there's a lot of contempt politically. There's also contempt within our families, and so there's a chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 37, that I think is going to help us to talk about that just a little a little bit. But before we jump into that, I want to say that I recently read a book called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Now, this is not a Christian book, so I'm not like recommending this to you as a part of your devotional diet or anything like that. But it did have some interesting stuff in it, some interesting ideas, and some interesting research is reported in the book. And so I want to share a little bit about that to you as it relates to contempt. As one of the major indicators of whether marriages are actually going to survive or whether they're going to end in divorce. John Gottman um, has worked on this since the 1980s, and Gottman has brought more than 3,000 married couples into what he calls um, his love labs. Uh, That sounds romantic, doesn't it? Love labs. Uh, on the university or near the University of Washington campus. Each couple has been videotaped and the results have been analyzed according to a numbering system that he has. So there are different ideas that are different emotions or postures toward the other person. He looks at facial expressions, things that they say, things like that. So disgust is one of those, contempt, um, anger, defensiveness, whining, sadness, stonewalling, being neutral, you know, all these, all these things are given a point value for each second of the conversation. And he comes up with a numerical, um, uh, you know, he has a, an equation to put all these numbers together to figure out how successful is this marriage going to be, or is it going to end in divorce sometime in the next 15 years? He's been doing this since the 1980s. So um, you might think, wow, that surely that doesn't work. You can't put something so objective onto something as subjective as that. Um, but on the basis of those calculations, Gottman has proven something remarkable. This is, I'm reading from uh, the book Blink. If he analyzes an hour of a husband and wife talking, he can predict with 95% accuracy whether that couple will still be married 15 years later. If he watches a couple for 15 minutes, his success rate is still around 90%. Um, Recently, a professor who works with Gottman named Sybil Carrere who was playing around with some of the videotapes trying to design a new study, discovered that if they looked at only three minutes of a couple talking, they could still predict with fairly impressive accuracy who was going to get divorced and who was going to make it. The truth of a marriage can be understood in a much shorter time than anyone ever imagined. One of the key elements that comes up in this is uh, the idea of contempt. In fact, as they continued working on this, they found that if if you could recognize contempt in a couple or in one of the members of a couple contempt toward the other one. This would allow you to do away with a lot of the other stuff they thought you needed. You could use contempt to predict the length of a marriage or whether a marriage was going to survive. And so that, that was really, really interesting to me. In fact, this Gottman uh, fellow, if I remember correctly, it was him that was in a restaurant. He says, I can go into a restaurant and I can listen to a couple at the table next to me. And I've gotten so good at this because I've been doing it for so long I almost want to go over there and tell them the results from just listening to them like I can tell. Are they going to make it or are they not going to make it? Now, obviously, we can be skeptical of that. And, of course, that's not controlling for, uh, you know, I mean, like, for example, uh, people that are committed Christians may end up experiencing some contempt in their marriage, but through their faith in the Lord, they can overcome that. And so we hope that that will happen. But what I did want to to point out here was that contempt is a powerful thing. How can you tell if you're experiencing contempt in a friendship, in a, a business relationship, in a marriage or something like that? Well, one of the things that comes out in the book um, is that uh, are you positively oriented or negatively oriented toward another person? Now, again, I want to remind you, I'm not a mental health professional. Uh, I'm just telling you what's in the book. But are you positively oriented or negatively oriented? Now, the way this works is if you're positively oriented toward someone, then um, let's say you're having a conversation with your spouse on the couch and say I'm, I'm talking with my wife, I'm going to assume if I'm positively oriented that she's generally a nice person, a person who has my best interests at heart, who's selfless or whatever. These are gonna be the, the positive aspects are going to be what I assume to generally be true. So that if something, if she says something mean, for example, um, I'll recognize that's just an anomaly. She didn't mean that. Whereas if I'm negatively oriented towards someone and they do something nice, I'm going to assume that was the anomaly and generally she's not nice to me. So for example, if we're sitting on the couch and um, she's trying to tell me a story and I interject in the story and she says, shut up, shut up. I'm trying to tell you something. Okay. Well, if I'm positively oriented, I'm going to say, well, I didn't like that at all being told to shut up, but I get it. She's trying to tell me a story. She's not usually like that. It's fine. It's no big deal. Whereas um, if I'm negatively oriented, I'm going to be like that jerk. I can't believe she just said that to me. So it's important to keep these in mind when you're trying to figure out how you're doing in your relationship. How do you and your wife um, relate to each other and and how we're doing in our marriage right now? So I thought that was really interesting. And And the thing that I think was most interesting about this is that contempt is such a powerful thing. It is very difficult to come back from contempt once things get that bad in a relationship. And so we want to stay away from contempt, that we want to foster um, good feelings and not contempt in our marriages and our families and our relationships with people. And so uh, when we look at the story today in Genesis chapter 37, we see the brewing of contempt and what it ultimately leads to. And the important thing for our story today and uh, the important thing for your story, if you are trying generally to be a person you should be trying to perfectly be a person whose steps are ordered of the Lord and who walks in his ways. And if you're doing that, which none of us will do that perfectly, but we should always strive for perfection. If you're doing that, then when someone has contempt toward you, they have really some contempt toward you. God, because it's God who's working through your life, and that's what we see happen in the story today. So let's take a look at Genesis uh, chapter 37, and as maybe you're turning there or, or opening uh, a web browser and going there or going there in your Bible app on your phone, uh, I want set to the, set the stage for this with uh, some words from Walter Brueggemann in his Genesis interpretation. He says about this chapter, this chapter marks the beginning of a new narrative which continues to the end of Genesis. It sets the main themes, and the new section he's talking about is basically the story of Joseph, which is going to get interrupted, but still, overwhelmingly, we're focused on Joseph now um, throughout the book of Genesis. Um, It sets the main themes and issues which will dominate the entire Joseph narrative. This chapter sets those themes. Joseph, beloved son of Jacob's old age, is introduced abruptly. He now embodies a new history. The narrative reflects a sharp new beginning, The chapter is easily divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 4 introduce the entire Joseph narrative and set the family tensions, which trigger the action. So it sets up for the contempt that Joseph's brothers will have toward him. Verses 5 through 36 announce the main theme, the power of the dream and its conflict with business as usual, embodied by the brothers. Um, did Did I get that right? Yeah. Uh, Already in this brief unit, the theme of the entire narrative is clear. The battle is between the dream and the killers of the dream. The dream seems nullified by the end of the chapter. The father believes the dream is dead in verse 33. The brothers believe the threat of the dream has been removed in verse 28. Only the single verse, verse 26, hints at another possibility. And we'll get there. The main character in the drama is not Joseph, but Yahweh. Though hidden in the form of a dream, silent and not at all visible, the listener will understand that the dream is the unsettling work of Yahweh upon which everything else depends. Without the dream, there would be no Joseph and no narrative. From the perspective of the brothers, without the dream, there would be no trouble or conflict. For the father, without the dream, there would be no grief or loss. The dream sets its own course. Uh, The father, brothers, and dreamer, notwithstanding. And in the end, the dream prevails over the tensions of the family. So uh, if you're familiar with the story, some of that may make sense. If you're not, we're going to jump into it now. But that section that I just read was from Brueggemann's Interpretation of Bible Commentary for Teaching from pages 298 to 299. So let's begin with the text and let's make some comments as we go. Chapter 37, verse 1, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had lived as a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. So Joseph is out here with his other brothers and they're getting into something that isn't right. We don't know what it is. Something bad. They're doing something bad. And he comes back and tells his father about it. So he's a tattletale. Now, this is obviously going to create some tension, which ultimately is going to snowball into full-blown contempt if it hasn't already. But this is sort of the relationship that Joseph has already with his brothers as we begin this part of the story. And uh, we don't know what it was that his brothers were getting into, um, but they were doing something wrong. We're not told what it is. But whatever his brothers were doing wrong, he told his father. And from everything we know about Joseph, from what comes later in the story of Joseph's life, we know that he's a man of integrity. He's a good man. And so this is, I mean, in fact, he's so much a man of integrity that he's put over all of Egypt, basically, in charge of almost everything before the whole thing's done. And so as a result of all of that, we would suspect that he's not making up some lie to say something bad about his brothers. Uh, th- he's probably honestly reporting something his brothers are doing that they shouldn't be doing. And uh, so this this is upsetting. Uh, this will be upsetting to his brothers. Um, and uh, so we're seeing the beginnings of all that contempt here. Now, uh, brothers are going to have these sorts of relationships. And now that I have two daughters, I know that can happen with daughters too. But you have this, um, maybe there's some jealousy. Maybe there's this desire to... See the other kid get it to some degree. Um, I remember one time when I was probably, I don't know, twelve years old. I was sitting on, the, I was, I was sitting around our house, and um, I heard my father say about my brother when he gets home, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to tell him what I think and I'm going to ground him or whatever he said he was going to do. And uh, I was excited by this. I thought this was great. This was fantastic. And so I went and sat on the front porch and waited for my brother to come home because I couldn't wait to watch the whole thing unfold from the moment my brother got out of his car to the moment that he really got whatever he was going to get for whatever it was that he did by my father. Well, nothing happened. He came home and I watched intently to see this whole thing unfold and nothing happened. Uh, my father didn't say a word to him and, and nothing at all happened and so uh sometime later i was with my parents in the car and i said to my father you lied and my father stopped the car and turned around and looked at me and said i what i said you lied you said you were going to really give it to my brother and you didn't give it to him and he said son i have my own reasons for not doing that and as much as your mother and i have tried to impress upon you the importance of honesty that you would indicate that I had lied about that without asking me my reasons is just so disappointing. And it broke my heart because I had (laughs) disappointed my father. But I also learned a lesson there that why was I so excited about seeing my brother come to some punishment? It didn't make a lot of sense, but it's all too normal between siblings, I guess. So the point is, I think I can relate to this on some level, but not on the whole level, because this is going to go to another level here in just a moment. Verse three, now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons, Israel being Jacob, because he was the son of his old age and he made him a multicolored tunic. Now, remember that Benjamin was born even more into Jacob's old age than Joseph was, but for some reason, Jacob, uh, Jacob came to favor Joseph more. Now, it's been suggested that it might be because Joseph was the oldest son of Jacob's one true love. That could have been the reason for this. And as Steve Gregg points out, we don't want to forget that we all will all come to learn of Joseph's incredible integrity. And so Jacob may have recognized that in him and favored him for that reason. And while we don't know much about Benjamin in in the story, or we're not told much about Benjamin's integrity, um, the other brothers are crooks and liars. And so it wouldn't be hard to see that Joseph or Jacob would favor Joseph for this reason. Um, but but he did favor him. And I've never really understood this. I've said this before in this series when this has come up. I've never really understood the idea of loving one kid or favoring one kid more than another. Um, I, I, well, I can understand liking a kid more. If I if I had two kids and I have two daughters and there is a, a strange and mystical equality in my love for them. One of them is in many ways, much more like me, has much more in common with me. The interests are there, um, and and so you might think, oh well, you you love that child more, but I really don't. I, it's it's this bizarre thing that only parents can understand, where um, two two children that you have and and you do you love them in this like platonically precise equal way, and I don't think that could ever be taken away from me, but because uh, because it goes deeper than their attitudes or how they treat me. It's a very interesting thing. But um, I, I could imagine uh, liking one of my kids less than the other if one of them was a crook or a liar. Uh, but this idea of loving one more than the other—I don't, I don't, I don't get that. Uh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe. It, obviously, he favors Joseph, but maybe um, we're thinking more of he, he loves him more than another in terms of how he treats him. But even that would indicate um, some sort of favor that might be a greater love. It's—it's it's hard. To, it's hard to say. Um, But anyway, he gives him this uh, coat of many colors, as it's famously called, and um, a coat of many colors obviously would be a sign of favor because that's a very expensive thing, especially at that time. Uh, Just here recently, Smithsonian Magazine, just a few days ago, released on February 1st, I believe it was that it's been discovered, uh, well, here's the headline from their magazine, Royal Purple Fabric dated to time of biblical David found in Israel. Now, obviously that's way past all of this that's going on with uh, Jacob and Joseph and all of those 12 sons, but uh, it still makes the point that that even after this time, it was still a very rare to have certain colors and to have a multicolored thing because you couldn't just go down to the local Joanne's fabric and get all the color dye you want or wherever you go. I don't know if that's right. Uh, But here's what the article says about this royal purple fabric that dates to the time of King David. Quote, the color immediately attracted our attention, but we found it hard to believe that we had found true purple from such an ancient period, says the study co-author Erez Ben Yosef, an archaeologist at Tel Aviv University, in a statement. Derived from the bodies of snails, the dye used on the wool fibers was extremely valuable in the ancient world. Previous excavations had found the color on mollusk shells and pottery fragments, but not on fabrics. So this was, uh, I mean, that's purple. That's obviously not all the colors have to come from snails, right? And it's really rare like that. But it gives you an idea of... That you would have to get colors, various colors from various different sources, and it was a to have a, a, a to have a garment that had multiple colors on it would be an expensive thing, and so most col- commentators think this coat was Jacob's way of ceremonially or symbolically designating Joseph as his favorite, and so the brothers would see that, and the brothers would recognize the contempt yet again, uh, or would be- develop the contempt. Verse four, and his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. There it is. Couldn't speak to him on friendly terms. There's that negative, um, negative orientation toward Joseph that we talked about. Then Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf stood up and also remained standing. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he had yet another dream and informed his brothers of it and said, Behold, I have had yet another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He also told it to his father as well as to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Am I and your mother and your brothers actually going to bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, um, especially the the one with the sun and moon and stars, you you got you got the whole family bowing down basically to Joseph, and Jacob's asking. I mean, he's he's not discounting it entirely because it says at the end of verse eleven that he's going to keep. He kept these matters in his mind. Maybe this is true, you know, but. Um, but it would be a, a strange thing. J- Jacob's probably thinking, especially he says, "Am I and your mother gonna bow down? I mean, she's she's dead. How's she gonna bow down?" So, um, but he kept this. The brothers just became jealous. The contempt is increasing even more. But uh, but Jacob here is um, is is going to think about it further. Now, if there wasn't a divine hand in this, I've always and even so, I've, I've always been tempted to think, Joseph, why are you telling them about this? Right? I mean, if you've got a story like that, you already have to sense what your brothers are feeling about you. And you, and you had dreams like this where everybody's bowing down to you and you're going to tell them about that. And you think, how did you think this was going to go? Because of that, some people have suggested perhaps that he told them out of arrogance. Some have thought, no, it's just that he was naive about it. Um, but, uh, I tend to think that he was just bewildered by these dreams. And so perhaps God wants me to tell my family about this thing, but it does upset them. I, if it was me, I, I, who knows what you'd do in a situation like that, but I would think I would maybe go tell my father. But other than that, you know, just let's not tell those brothers, those brothers are volatile already. So let's, uh, let's not tell them that they're all going to be bowing down to me according to this dream. Um, or this, I had this dream where they were bowing down to me. Whatever, whatever pans out. Uh, but th- this is um, this is a strange thing. I th- I don't think I would have done it that way. But um, but he does. Uh, so now wh- it could be. Why is it that God gave Joseph this dream at this point? Uh, Greg suggests that maybe it's because Joseph is obviously being bullied and mistreated and treated as an outcast by his brothers. And he could have been really depressed about this whole thing and it could have chipped away at his resolve. And so perhaps God gave him this now to encourage him a little bit. Um, who knows? It's, it's hard to say. These are things that we just have to speculate about. But why, why does it say that Jacob kept these things in his mind? Maybe Jacob really sees some reason to believe that this might be true um again greg talks about that that um uh, what we know from later on in the story that that joseph is a physically attractive man and you think well what what does that have to do with it well in these ancient societies if a child was good looking that could be an indication that god's got his hand on that child for some special task and in fact i mean even uh, e- even today it's i mean you can see how people would come to that conclusion because even today we have Good-looking people, obviously having some sort of an advantage in the professional field, and so you can see how people might come to that conclusion. Um, he puts it; Greg puts it. It would be hard to construct a biblical theology of good looks, and I agree. But it isn't something the Bible ignores completely. Um, in First Peter chapter three, verse is three. First uh, Peter chapter three, verses three and four. We're told that it's not the most important thing. It says your adornment must not be merely the external braiding of the hair, wearing gold jewelry or putting on apparel, but it should be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So it's more important what's going on internally, right? It's more the heart is more important. But the Bible does occasionally tell us when someone's good looking and physically attractive. And so that shouldn't be discounted. Um, there could be something to that. But in the end, the stage has been set now for some serious contempt. Verse 12, Then his brothers went to pasture their flock, father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are, you, are your brothers not pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he sent him to go, said to him, Go. Now, and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Now, this might not have been the most wise thing for Jacob to do. Jacob knows what kind of men these brothers are. He has to know how they feel about Joseph and Joseph's and he's sending Joseph out here into the middle of nowhere to check on these brothers to see what's going on Um But it may have been the furthest thing from Jacob's mind that they would actually do harm to one of their brothers. And he may have had some inkling that at least Reuben would uh, would would take care of uh, Joseph and watch out for Joseph when he's around the brothers, because we have some indication here in a moment that Reuben does exactly that to some degree, maybe not as much as we'd like. Uh, verse 15, a man found him and behold, he was wandering in the field and the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, they have moved from here for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. When they saw him from a distance and before he came closer to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say a vicious animal devoured him. Then we will see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben, now pay attention, but Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands by saying, let's not take his life. Then Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him so that later he might rescue him out of their hands. Um, to return him to his father. So Reuben, this is telling you what Reuben's thinking. Reuben says, let's let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in one of these pits. And then he's thinking, I'll come back later and um, let him out of their hands to return him to his father. So, um, yeah, again, what I want to say about this generally is um, Reuben's sticking up for Joseph. And Jacob should have known better, again, because Look, I wouldn't even send my youngest daughter in to wake up my oldest daughter on Saturday morning. Sometimes my youngest daughter wants my oldest daughter to wake up and she'll beg me that she can go in there and wake up her older sister. I will not let that happen because my older daughter will not be the kindest, let's just say, to her younger sister in the morning necessarily. I wouldn't even send her in the, And yet Jacob knows what these men are like, and he's going to send out Joseph. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's what happened. Verse 23, so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the multicolored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now, the pit was empty without any water in it. Now, let's talk about these pits for a minute. This was a cistern, and according to the IVP background commentary on the Old Testament, uh, cisterns were hollow, hollowed out of the limestone bedrock or were dug and then lined with plaster to store rainwater. They provided water for humans and animals through most of the dry months when they were empty. They sometimes served as temporary cells for prisoners. This happened for Jeremiah, but Jeremiah was let out of there. Uh, but but you could take in wartime, you could take a, a person that you'd captured and put him down in one of these cisterns and not worry about it. He's going to be there when you get back. He's not going anywhere. And the reason for that is because, as described, this has like a narrow opening, but gets larger as you go down to the base of this cistern. Um, And and then it was plastered on the inside so that it would be smooth and so that water would be contained in it. So if you put a man down in there, he's not going to be able to get out, at least not very easily and not easily and not plausibly. So this would make for a great little temporary prison. So it makes sense that they would put him down in there if they wanted him out of the way and and he wouldn't be able to go anywhere I wouldn't be able to run back to daddy. Um, All right, verse 25. Then they sat down to eat a meal, but as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites. Now notice that it says Ishmaelites because in a moment it's going to say Midianites, and we need to understand what's going on there was coming from Gilead with their camels carrying labdanum, resin, balsam, and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother to cover up his blood? Come and let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Now, it's hard to know quite how to take this. Um, On the one hand, we could say maybe, like Reuben, Judah's got um, some good in him here that he's trying to stick up for his brother. He says, After all, he is our own flesh and blood. It could also be that he's just after the money because he is our own brother after all. Let's not kill him; we can make some money off of this. It's hard to say from what we see here. Um, so, but in either sense, it 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 does tend to um, work out to um, Joseph's benefit um, that he that he kind of saves him here for a moment. At least it looks like he's saving him for a moment. He ends up saving him for a lot longer, um, and his brothers listen to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by and they pulled him out and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. So they brought Joseph into Egypt. So a couple of things I want to talk about here, the Ishmaelites and Midianites and then the 20 shekels of silver that they were paid. Uh, So again, with the IVP background commentary, Midianite and Ishmaelites, the interchange of these two names in the story probably reflects a close affinity between the two groups. Some suggest that the Ishmaelites were considered a sub-tribe of the Midianites. Others suggest the Midianites simply purchased Joseph from the Ishmaelites. However, based on the intermingling of the names in Judges 8.24, it would appear that the biblical writer either assumed they were related or is reflecting a known kin tie between them. So that's important. You see these names almost used interchangeably here, and it's because there's a very close association. could even be that there's a— that uh, there's a sub-tribe relationship here, um, that the Ishmaelites were a sub-tribe of the Midianites. Now, this 20 shekels, the 20 shekels paid for Joseph was about normal for a slave during the time period. Uh, my understanding is that they, they would they, an a, a, a interchange or a, a transaction like this, 20 shekels, then later that slave might be sold for 30 shekels so that there was a markup to make some money um, if, you, if you're in the slave trade at this point in time. But um, uh, 20 was normal for a slave in this time period, as attested in other literature of the time. For instance, the laws of Hammurabi reveal this. And it would constitute approximately two years of wages. So, I mean, if you think about it, you're looking at uh, these brothers. You've got these brothers and then each one you've got 20 shekels and you're going to split that between 12 brothers. Everybody gets two or three shekels. Shekels, you know, a couple of shekels, something like that. You might not think that sounds like a lot, but when you consider that um, 20 shekels is a, is two years wages, that's a substantial amount of money. Uh, verse 29. Now Reuben returned it to the pit and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat. So at some point, clearly, uh, when this transaction was taking place, Reuben wasn't there because he's now coming back and he's seeing that the pit is empty. So, uh, so again, we can perhaps Reuben would have done more if he could. Um, so they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood and they sent the multicolored tunic. And brought it to the to their father and said, "We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not." I mean, how many multicolored tunics are floating around at this period? Also consider that this is a dishonest ruse of a question, because it's not like if you go now to a clothing store and you pick out from the rack two or three of the same shirt. That has different colors on it. That they're going to be basically identical because of machine manufacturing of those clothes. Um, this was a this was a unique garment, right? <laughs> even if there were other multicolored garments, even with the same colors, they're not going to look exactly like this multicolored garment. So they they know what's up, and and they're just uh, they're just um, they're just in a ruse here. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth undergarment over his waist and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters got up to comfort him, and he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol, that is the grave, in mourning for my son, I'm going to die of mourning for this son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So verse 36, as Brueggemann said earlier when we first started, that's actually the bright hope of this chapter. This is a chapter that is replete with with sad situations, but here we see actually there's a to be continued here at the end, obviously. There's something better coming. Now notice that this Jacob is so sad here. Any of his sons and daughters could have, um, could have really comforted him and, and, and taken care of him here. Uh, if, I mean, if they knew the story, I guess the daughters couldn't, but the sons could, the sons could say, yeah, he's actually still alive. Okay. We did something horrible again, big surprise, but don't feel so bad. We can actually maybe go find him, but, but nothing like that happens. They pretend to comfort him. Um, and so that's that's a sad thing here. As we get to the end of this chapter, I like to read a little bit from the Bible Knowledge Commentary by Alan P. Ross. He says the theme of suffering as a test for character is predominant both for Joseph and his brothers. Though Joseph was righteous, he was not kept from suffering. He was preserved by his faith through it. In the end, Joseph could acknowledge that God meant it all for good, as we find out in famously in chapter 50, verse 20 of this. The Bible's wisdom literature assures the faithful that God brings Good out of evil and suffering. Though the wicked may prosper for a time, the righteous hold fast to their integrity, because there is a higher, more enduring principle of life. The wise recognize that the Lord God is sovereign over nature and the nations, and that he righteously orders the affairs of his people. At times, God's ways seem unfair and paradoxical, but if endured by faith, they bring blessing to the righteous. So, as we come down to the end of this, we recognize that there's Um, there are several things that lead to the contempt that is taking place in this passage, but the contempt being there creates a situation that only God could remedy as he will, as the story of Joseph continues. And we, most of us know how that story ends in a great moment of justice. Um, But the contempt here leads to actually this wicked, uh, the plotting of a murder and then the selling of Joseph off into slavery. We're experiencing contempt right now in politics. The right and left are are experiencing contempt. You know, it's not just that there's disagreement on policies and things like that, or even um, minor disagreements about values. There is major disagreement about values, and therefore there is major disagreement and contempt such that we wonder as a nation right now, will this relationship between the right and the left meet any kind of peaceful, um, peaceful end. I mean, it just seems like there is genuine contempt. And uh that contempt is also there between atheists and and theists and atheists and Christians on on the internet, as as I have a strong internet-based ministry, I, I see it all the time. There is contempt there. Recently there was a a person who wrote in a comment section, I was I was encouraging people to read um academic level books by Christians, or by theists at least, and one atheist said, "Look, I, I I can't read those books because it would be I would constantly be having to fact check everything they say and follow every citation that they use because I genuinely just consider most Christian authors to be dishonest." And I thought, my goodness, even if there's not an emotional contempt there, the contempt is still there. the the contempt that says the, the negative orientation toward Christian authors in general. and of course there are authors that, uh, that that acts dishonestly authors in general but that's not really the point that I want to make here. The point is that there is this negative orientation that says I generally can't trust what Christian authors say. Well if that level of contempt is there, how can we ever hope to fix it and for that and, and to successfully minister? to people who don't believe when there's that level of distrust like that and contempt. It's obviously there in many marriages and many families. And so you should evaluate your own life and ask yourself the contempt that I'm experiencing. Do I experience contempt toward any particular person? And then analyze that and take that to the Lord to see what he would, how he would lead you in the midst of that. Because the absence of it and the absence of jealousy that lead led to the con, contempt that we find in this story in Genesis 27. The absence of it is such a peaceful and rewarding thing. I've certainly experienced a lot of jealousy in my life. um, And I've experienced contempt toward other people. But when you can actually rejoice with others, um, like we would have loved to have seen Joseph's brothers rejoicing with him, it would have been very difficult, but, but to rejoice with him, it's a wonderful thing when that happens. It's, it's, a great thing to recognize within yourself. I, I've made lots of mistakes, and I just said, I'm, I've often been jealous, and, and I've experienced a lot of contempt. But at the same time, uh, when it's not there, it, it's a wonderful thing. Just recently, uh, many of you will know that Tim Barnett, who's a Christian apologist and has come to be a friend of mine, and uh, has promoted our channel uh, quite a bit, and I really appreciate that, Tim, if you see this. But he started a YouTube channel, I don't know, like February of this year or of last year, I guess, or maybe later in the year, I don't know. But, he, but, but within a year's time, he's gone from one subscriber on YouTube to 20,000 subscribers on YouTube. And he's got a great platform for what he does. I mean, it's just perfect for uh, YouTube. And so he's had a wonderful impact there. And what I found in myself was um, I'm, you know, right now I'm, I'm about half that, <laughs> half of his 20,000. And I, I thought to myself, this guy has done in like a year or maybe a lot less than a year. I'm not exactly sure what I've been trying to do. He's done twice what I've been able to do in since 2017. <laughs> and what was amazing about it was when I saw that he got to 20,000, my response was instantly and genuinely before I even realized it, that is so awesome the kingdom is going to be able to have such an impact because of the reach that Tim is getting. I feel the same way about other brothers who are doing this same type of ministry. And then I reflected back on it sometime later and I thought, yeah, that's interesting. I don't have any jealousy at all towards other apologists who are doing well. There's certainly no contempt. I'm happy for them. Like it's happening to me. I'm as happy for them as I would be if it were happening to me, because of course I'd like to have, uh, a, a larger ministry all the time, and I'm grateful for what God's given me. But I thought that is a good that is a good thing. And again, I'm not saying this so that you'll like think good things about me for saying it. Uh, but 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 I realized it, and I thought that feels good. It feels good to have good feelings for other people instead of bad jealous feelings. And so we want to foster that where we can, especially within the kingdom of God, because what I see happening with uh, individuals watching this video who work uh, a secular job, but you have a ministry within that secular job or pastors watching this who might get material for uh, pastoring your own churches uh, with other apologists who have much bigger platforms than I do is I just see the kingdom of God being pushed in all directions and I can rejoice with any one of those people as if it's a success that I'm experiencing because it is because we're all a part of the same kingdom and it's a success for our king. I hope you'll take these things to heart and I hope that this has been a blessing to you. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.